It's good to see everybody here this morning. It's just awesome privilege and pleasure to be able to open up the book of Ephesians. It's been fun going through it. At the beginning of the year, I said, you know, this is going to be a great year, 2021, uh, because we get to go through this book. And I don't know about you, but it seems like it's been pretty alive to me as I sit there and study it. And it, it just seems like it gets better and better and better and better. So we're looking at going through the book in an entire year, but it's also broken up into four different series. So um, chapters one through three, we're looking at the series, The Believer's Blessing. And then chapters uh, four and uh, five and a half, we're looking at the believer's behavior. And then we're going to focus in September uh, quite a few weeks on the believer's family because it is something that it seems like our country is starting to lose. And uh, then we'll start looking at the believer's battle um, on top of that. But it's been a great time going through the book with you. Just to give you kind of a rundown of what chapter one is like, and we're still in chapter two, but uh, chapter one, you know, Paul just gets right down to business. He just gives you the gospel message. Blessed are, every, you have every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms are yours. And then he gives this gospel message that is beautiful from God's perspective with so much power, with so much strength. And then after he gives us the gospel message, he prays that we understand the gospel message. We pray that we know the gospel message. He prays that the gospel message would sink into us. And then in starts in chapter 2, what does he do again? He just gives the gospel message again. Gospel message, 1 through 14, prays that it will sink in. Chapter 2, he gives the gospel message again. But what's interesting is that uh, when he gave the gospel message in chapter 1, he gave it from heaven's perspective. In other words, this is what the gospel message looks like from heaven's perspective. When you start using the words before the foundation of the world, God predestined, God chose us. I mean, those words, um, you hear them, you go, oh, those are controversial words. Well, why are they controversial words? Because they go off the tracks of the human mind. In fact, because they're so big, they're so large, it's like, what did he just say? What is predestined? What is before the foundation of the world? And, and God's just like, you know, don't, don't put me in a box. I'm big, and you worship me, and I'm giving this beautiful gospel message from my perspective. So that's what happens in chapter one. But then chapter two, we have the gospel message given to us from our perspective. In other words, if I'm going to look at the gospel message, how do I view it, you know, even as a human being? And that's what we're looking at in chapter two. And of course, we looked at the same passage last week. But uh, it's such a powerful passage that we're just going to look at the same passage again, but we're going to focus on one word that is driving the passage, and it is the word grace. So as you see, I broke it up again. We are dead in sin, but what does grace give us? It makes us alive, it cleanses, and it humbles us. And so let's read the passage, and then we'll work through it with that one word, grace, in mind. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says this. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too are formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he, which God prepared beforehand so that we will walk in them. So looking at this passage, we want to ask the question, grace is driving it, but what does grace do to you? What does grace do to you? Grace makes you alive, grace cleans you, and grace humbles you if you're looking at the context of this passage. So grace is a word that comes uh, with extreme power, with extreme strength, with, with extreme glory. In fact, it comes with so much power that that one word will determine how a Christian is going to behave in this world. That one word will drive our decisions in our Christian life. That one world will drive our worldview. The one world would drive our behavior and even drive our emotions. In fact, it's one of the most powerful words in the Bible, if not the most powerful word in the Bible. It is that word, grace. So we just want to look at that word specifically, and we want to talk about the three dimensions of grace, and then we want to talk about the impact that grace has on a believer if it carries so much weight. So as we're looking at um, the three dimensions of grace, unconditional acceptance is number one. Number two would be God's empowerment for grace and service and God's cleansing from sin. But let's focus on number one, unconditional acceptance. When you hear the word grace, unconditional acceptance is completely and entirely wired into it. In fact, it should be one of the largest things that hits our mind. What does unconditional acceptance mean? It means that we have been given something that we do not deserve, something we have not worked for, something that we did not earn, and something we could not have unless it's been given to us as a gift. And in this passage, we're talking about salvation. It is by grace that you have been saved. So when you stand in front of God, um, you're going to say, God, he's going to ask you a question, why would I let you into my heaven? Um, Some of the words that you really don't want to say is because I've lived a good life. It's because I've obeyed you. It's because I even trusted you. You know what the answer is? God, you should not let me into heaven at all. But by you leaving heaven and you coming to earth and you dying on the cross, putting my sins upon your shoulders and then taking them to the grave, suffering what sin is required of to suffer, which is death, and then raising again, it is because of what you did that should let me into heaven, not because of what I did. I've been saved by grace and that is it on no merit upon myself. It has been a gift that God has handed to me and I can't complete anything, accomplish anything, or work my way up to heaven whatsoever. Grace is an unconditional acceptance. I want to look at a couple passages that support this as well. Romans 11, 5 through 6 says this. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. See, grace and works carries the same thing as light and darkness. If light is present, what disappears? Darkness. If darkness is present, there cannot be light. There can only be one or the other. 
According to this passage, if works is there, grace all of a sudden disappears. Grace is gone. But if grace is there, then there can't be any works at all. It's, it's, this is black and white. By grace you have been saved, not in your works whatsoever. Galatians 5, 4 says this, you who are trying to be justified by, the, by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. People that are trying to do the law for the purpose to get into heaven, trying to obey God to be good so they can merit heaven, have literally fallen away from grace. Just in a sense that if grace is there, darkness is not. Just like the law is not. Just black and white. The law does not justify. We are saved by an unconditional acceptance from God. It is a gift, not a part of works at all. Number two, God's empowerment for growth and service was the other dimension of grace. Grace is not only an unconditional acceptance, but it is grace has a power, is a power. Let's look at Acts 4.33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now we know that what has taken place in the book of Acts is the greatest revival that has ever taken place on the planet. People are being saved by the thousands and the apostles are teaching and proclaiming the gospel message and they're doing it with power as people are being saved and disciples are being made. According to this passage, grace was upon them. This is not unconditional acceptance was upon them. This is, there is a power that is upon them and what is that power that is upon them? That when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is Christ in you. It is the Holy Spirit in you, and power comes out of you as a result of salvation. And grace is what is driving these people forward in the book of Acts. It is a power. Second Timothy 2.1 says this, You then, my son, be strong in the grace. So you have you have power and then you have strong in the two different passages and all under the context of grace. It is a power that is working in you. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, by, but by grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The power of grace was working through Paul is what he is describing there. What kind of power? Boldness, confidence, energy, strength, determination, conquering temptation, staying away from sin, vision, passion, wisdom, and love. Grace was an unconditional gift that Paul received, but it was also a power that was working inside of him, as we see in those passages. Number three, the third um, aspect of grace, which is God's cleansing from sin. I have two golden doodles, and the reason why we got them is, um, is that they don't shed, so it's great, because they come in, they sleep on the couch, I tried not to let that happen, but my wife says they look so comfortable on the couch, so we, you know, we feel, okay, they can sleep on the couch, they don't shed, it works, and they also sleep on the floor, and they sleep on the floor by our bed, so they're all around the house, and they're big dogs, and they're extremely furry dogs, so since they don't shed, we think, oh, they've got to be wonderful dogs, but they are literally a mop 
that goes outside and mops up all the dirt that is outside and then brings it in the house and then releases it, drains all the dirt on the inside, whether on the couch, whether on the floor, wherever they're at. And um, so every time um, it's even raining outside, it's like, don't let the dogs out. Don't let the dogs out. They'll go mop up the dirt and they'll bring it in the house. And that's just, that's just what they do. So I like to cut their hair and keep their hair really short. But my wife says, you know, I don't like the dirt, but the dogs look so beautiful when they're all fluffy. They look like golden doodles are supposed to look. And I said, just let me cut their hair. Well, um, I haven't won the argument yet, so they still have their hair. But last week, I gave them a bath, and uh, to purpose of cutting their hair, but I gave them a bath. And when you give these dogs bath, you know, it takes like half the bottle of shampoo. It's just like they suck up the shampoo. And then it takes like two hours to rinse them because the shampoo just keeps on, keeps on coming out. And uh, so I gave them a bath with a purpose to cut their hair. But after I gave them a bath, they were like new dogs that I just loved because they're all soft and they're bushy. And I started to have my wife's feelings. Well, they're so cute, you know, with the long hair. And I have yet cut their hair because they're completely different dogs. They don't make a mess. I don't let them outside all the time when it's raining. They're completely different than when they had dirt. I viewed them different. I looked at them different. I loved them. That's bad to say, isn't it? Because that's really conditional. I love them different, you know, when, when they're clean. I mean, it's just kind of the way it is. Grace has a cleansing work on us, a stamp on us that washes us clean. Romans 6.1 says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may be increased? So I continue to have to wash you and continue to have to, to clean you and, and that you're just going to have to grow in this grace? Jude 1.4 makes mention of it as well. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who, cha- who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ our sovereign Lord. So looking at these three aspects of graces, you know, um, I want to just kind of break them down. In fact, I have a little chart here. As I mentioned before, is that however we view this word grace will determine on how we live. And these are the three aspects that are mentioned. It's unconditional acceptance, empowerment for growth and service, and also the cleansing of sin. So when we think of the word grace, we can often not hold these three in balance, but we can embrace often two of them, maybe unconditional acceptance and, and empowerment to sin. So but the cleansing from sin, the cleansing work, you know, that's not no big deal. These two are a big deal. Well, what happens if those two are, is you make a distortion of what grace is, unconditional acceptance, empowerment to sin, and then all of a sudden you have this person that turns into a license to sin. This is the person that I can do whatever I want. I'm saved by grace. Yes, I carry power and I carry this unconditional acceptance. God's going to forgive me. God's going to accept me into heaven. And now I have this free license to sin. See, the distortion on this is determining how we live because people don't necessarily hold it into balance. Let's go back. We have unconditional acceptance, empowerment for growth and service, and the cleansing of sin. Well, what if you believe in the cleansing of sin and also you believe in the unconditional acceptance? And when you think of grace, those two carry the dominance in your life rather than holding in balance. Well, then this ter- person turns into what? It turns into a lazy person. Ah, maybe I'll come to church on Easter. Yeah, I'll come to church on Christmas. I'm unconditionally accepted because God just is just in love with me and that's what he died for me and I'm completely cleansed because he did that and so I'm just on my road to heaven and I can do whatever I want, when I want, how I want and I don't really need to accomplish anything but what they're doing is they're forgetting the empowerment of growth 
and also service. Let's go back to the next one. Unconditional acceptance, empowerment for growth and service, and the cleansing of sin. Well, this person says, well, I'm going to take a hold of the cleansing of sin, but I'm going to get rid of the, I'm going to also hold on to the empowerment for growth and service. And these two are going to be the dominant aspects of how I define grace. But the unconditional acceptance, eh, it's not that big of a deal. I won't view it in balance. What do they turn into? They turn into legalist, legalism. What is legalism? Is it, I am pretty good and nobody else is good. I have empowerment, I have cleansing, and I wish everybody else had this empowerment and cleansing, and they forget the concept that they're saved by a gift, and they turn into legalistics. Do you see how much power this one word, grace, has on every person, and by the way that we look at it, the way we define it, and the way that we determine what it means is gonna drive us, send us, move us in a good direction, or even a bad direction. So I want to move to the passage now, and I want to talk about the impact that grace has on the believer, because the passage reveals the impact that grace has on the believer. Number four, what does it do? Grace makes us alive in Christ. It is a power. Um, grace is a new domain in which the Christian lives. It's a new realm that we literally walk into with a whole bunch of even different rules. God gives his people desire to obey him, and before they knew him, there is no desire to obey him. The only person you submit to is a person that is going to take care of you, and it's usually us. We are our own kings, we are our own lords, and we get what we want. That's, that's the drive of the human flesh, the drive of the human being. But When grace enters your soul and you are saved, there's a desire to obey the king of kings. There's an ability to obey the king of kings. There's an ability to work hard. There's an ability that increases joy even when circumstances are not there. And when you move from salvation, not salvation, to salvation, you even receive spiritual gifts. You get a new life that is called born again. Grace has entered and has entered with power, it has entered with force, and it has entered with strength. I want to look at the top of this passage, dead in sin. Look at these words. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to. What is according to? According to means under the control of. Under the control of the course of this world. Under the control of, he says it again, the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. We're not only not going to heaven when we die, when we do not accept Christ, is that we are bound while we live on earth. And under the control of, under the control of, of a spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, there's a force that's on us, a force that's driving us, a force that is sending us. But number four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he did what? Made us alive together with Christ at salvation. Grace entered in. It is by grace that you have been saved. When it comes to grace that you have been saved, yes, you are saved when you stand before God after you die, but you also have a power that can save you from the sin that wants to destroy you right now. You have a conscience that is alive, a conscience that is hot, that you no longer, that you did not have before you were a believer, but when you became a believer, all of a sudden that conscience just lit on fire. 
The direction, the vision, the power, and the strength has now entered you because Christ has entered you, and that's why we hear the words, in him, 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 and in him, seven times mentioned in chapter one. Because when we receive God's grace, Christ enters into us, and that is the power to fight and to combat the things that come our way. According to this, that we are once dead, but now we are alive. I don't want to describe dead, but let's describe alive. I'm alive to see. I'm alive to feel. I'm alive to respond. I'm alive to fight. And I'm alive to move because of the grace that has entered me. A power that carries me. A power that opens my eyes when temptation comes and understands that this temptation is going after my life. This temptation is going after my wife. This temptation is going after my children. This temptation, if it's coming on me, it's going after the church. It's coming after my message. This temptation that is coming for me is designed to take me out, to destroy me for the purpose of even ruining people that are next to me. See, when we have grace, yes, it is a gift that has been given us. But it's not just been given us so we can check it off and get to heaven when we die but it's been a gift that has entered inside of us that gives us power to combat the sin that damns us in the first place, to fight the sin that is coming after us in the present place. This is a power that is in us. Paul mentions it also again. It sets us free with Christ from a cleansing work. As we're moving through the passage, he's mentioning the next one. Grace cleanses you. start talking about my relationship about my wife I you know consistently bring her up and the reason why is because it is the the biggest picture the most clearest picture that we can understand our relationship with God in fact we're going to talk about that I can't wait until we get to Ephesians 5 because that is what we're going to talk about what does our relationship with God look like well take your relationship with your husband and wife and look at that relationship and you can understand the dynamics of the relationship between you and God so let's do that right now you know, I'm in a love relationship with my wife. That is a foundational thing that draws us together and is a foundational part of our house, of our home, of our relationship. But there's also another relationship that takes place between me and my wife. Do you know what that relationship is? It's a legal relationship. <laughs> that sounds romantic, doesn't it? But yes, it is a legal relationship. Now, I'm going to use myself as an example only for one reason, is because I don't want to use you for an example. But don't start any rumors after I use myself as an example, because it's not true. But what if my wife and I were going to go through a divorce? Let's just talk about that. My wife and I were going to go through the divorce. Well, if we're going to go through the divorce, love is, I don't know, at bay. You know, it's, 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 it's something, it's, it's gone, you know. Then what takes place? The foundation rises legally. And there's a third party that steps in called the law and says, you guys have been married? Yes, we've been married for 25 years. And then this law rises and they say, okay, what we're going to do is you're now going to separate. There's going to be ramifications that are going to take place because you guys are legally connected. Your finances are connected. Your home is connected. Your children is connected. And you are now separating. So we need to go through the legal system to divide those. And so what happens is then they, the law starts to make decision, okay, 50% here, the kids here, you know, and then it starts to work out this. It's a foundational piece that has been structured 
inside of our relationship. And every one of us have that foundational piece that has been structured inside of our relationship. Even in America, people living together, they say, well, if you live together for 10 years, you're automatically married. In other words, the law still commits to you because what happens is that when you get married, it means something even beyond love. There is a legal interaction that takes place. Now, even from God's perspective, there is a legal interaction that takes place. He uses the word that the two shall become one flesh. That is a statement on law. That's the bones of marriage. What does it look like when the two become one flesh? The two come together like this. So if a divorce takes place, what happens when we pull the two apart? It rips the heart out of the two. The consequences, because the law is broken and the law is gonna be paid for in regards to one flesh being connected and then the one flesh being ripped apart. This is the hard word that God just said the word. The two will become one flesh, therefore there will be legal consequences that will take place if you choose to go. In other words, you'll never be the same again. In other words, a part of you left you. And it is literally a part of you. So just giving you the legal dynamics of a relationship that takes place. What does legal mean? This is the word legal. Appointed, established, or authorized by the law. And what does law mean? Any written or positive rule, collection of rules prescribed under authority. A collection of rules prescribed under authority that when I got married, there's a collection of rules that have authority when we come together. When we look at God and we look at our relationship, there's a collection of rules that come together. In fact, there is law. In fact, I enter into a love relationship with God, but I also enter into a legal relationship with God. Now, what do I mean by a legal relationship with God? Let's just throw out one passage. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's not in your notes, but he says, he who made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is God who made Jesus sin to be sin on our behalf. Let's try to define that. I mean, is it literally, did he start using the Lord's name in vain? Literally, did he start sinning? I mean, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. He had to have sinned, is that correct? No, he was not actually sinning. He was legally sin. And what does legally sin mean? It means you need to look at the word sin and all the consequences. And if you look at all the consequences, if God is true in his word, which he is true in his word, and he carries the authority that if he says it, it is in stone, it is in paper, you're gonna have to do it. If Jesus became sin legally, all the legal ramifications need to come his way. And what was the legal ramifications that came his way? It was death if he was gonna pay for it. It was legal price that was death if he's gonna pay for it. It is legal rejection from the father as the father says, I cannot look upon sin. So what happens when Jesus was on the cross? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Because God literally turned his head and gave him the consequences that sin deserved, which is the rejection from the father. Legally, that all happened. But if you continue the verse, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so I can become righteous. 
Am I actually righteous? I mean, just to ask you a question, am I actually righteous, meaning that I never sin? Meaning that sin in my life is now gone because I became a Christian? No, I'm not actually righteous, but I'm legally righteous. And what does legally righteous mean? Legally righteous means I don't get what sin deserves. Legally righteous means that I can go in before the holy of holies because the temple veil is torn and I can look at God face in the face to face and say, God, I need to talk to you right now in prayer and he'll meet with me every single time. Why? Because I have legal access to him because I'm legally righteous in his eyes. Why? Because of what Christ has done for me. Not because of what I've done, but because what Christ has done for me. The reason why I bring all this up is because there's two large legal statements that are in our passage that's found in verse six. Look at verse six. It says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I just want to look at that. Raised us up with him is past tense. So what is he saying? Is he saying that I'm raised up with him now? Seated with him in the heavenly places. Am I literally seated in, with him in the heavenly places right now as I speak? The answer is no. But legally, I have been raised up with him. See, when Jesus went to the cross and he suffered the consequences of sin and he went to the grave, he rose again and is now alive. Therefore, I am legally alive, legally clean, in his eyes, completely free. It's been a transaction that's set in stone, the stone of Scripture. Legally, right now, I am seated with him in the heavenly places. If he says it, it's a legal transaction, and when I die, I can look at God right in the face, and I completely know my fate. And the reason why is because there's a foundation of legal law that he put into Scripture, not me, but that he put into Scripture and says that I can be clean, I can be washed, I can be whole, and when I look at God after I die, he's going to look at me as somebody who is a child, not somebody who should be judged for what I did, but because Jesus was judged for what I did, I could be free. There's a legal foundation. Legally, I have been crucified with Christ. Legally, I was raised with Christ. Legally, I've been seated with Christ. Legally, I'm a righteous just because of what he does. And legally, according to the Bible, I'm even a co-heir of Christ. That's what the Bible says. And if the Bible says it, it's in stone. It's, it's law. Sometimes I don't even like to say it because it's such a gift. But the reason why I even bring this up is because we ask the question, you know, what does a Christian look like? In fact, what does it mean to be a Christian? And our answer is often, well, you know, you go to church and you also, you know, you pray more when you become a Christian and you also tithe a, li- um, a little. I think that's part of the requirements of being a Christian. And, and you try to stay away from sin. You need to live a holy life because when you become a Christian, these are the things that come forward. Well, well what is the impact that is being stated in this passage is to become a Christian is literally saying, I am legally adopted. I am a son of the most high God. I am legally redeemed, meaning 
I'm not paying for my sin because Christ already paid for my sin. I am legally sealed. Looking at that first chapter, I am legally raised with Christ. I am legally alive. I am legally seated at the right hand of God. What does it mean to be a Christian? When you start falling into this avenue, it's like, oh my goodness, what have I received when I receive Christ? What have I received when I receive Christ? This is what's driving Paul. This is what's sending Paul. This is what's making Paul. I'm cleaned. I was walking on the road to Damascus for the purpose of killing Christians, and Jesus showed up. And when Jesus showed up to me, I broke before me because I saw my sin, and I found my Savior. And as a result, all this legal interaction inside this relationship took place where I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was once uh, dying for my sin, but now I am alive. All these things have specifically took place that hit Paul deep inside. It drove him. It sent him. It moved him. It embraced him. It encouraged him. It just did about everything to him because he understood the entire concept when he received salvation. Cleanses you. You get all the rewards from being cleansed. Number six, makes you into a humble servant of Christ, which would be unconditional acceptance. It's interesting that Jesus shares a lot of things. In fact, if you read the Bible, you know, we're going through the blessings, you know. What are the spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ? And and it's just blessing after blessing after blessing. In fact, the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, just a blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And, and what are these blessings? It's what we get to share of with Christ. It's what we get to be in Christ. In fact, we are raised with him. We are seated with him. His righteousness is our righteousness. We are fellow heirs with him. There's, there's a whole lot of sharing. And then he also even shares his life. In the first chapter, it's in Christ, in him, 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 seven times that are mentioned. I will share this relationship. I will share you my heart. I will share you my wisdom. I will share you my emotions. I will share my desires. I will share my resurrection. I'm sharing everything with you. Is there anything that God does not share? The answer is yes. One thing that he really does not share and that is the credit for your salvation, <laughs> which is interesting. I mean, he shares just about everything, but he says, you know, when it comes to salvation, I'm not sharing any glory with anybody. In fact, you cannot get there by your own merit, your own effort, your own work. You have done nothing, and you are nothing to even be accepted. It is by grace you have been saved, and it is not one gift of yourself. I will share a lot of things, but I'm not going to share that. Romans 8, or Ephesians 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result at work, so that you will not boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Looking at verse 9, it is a gift from God, not a result of works, and it is a reason why it has been granted to us, and the reason why it is granted to us is so that we will not boast. So why is he not sharing it? The reason why he is not sharing the works of redemption is because the only way this world will be saved is if it sees God rather than us. 
See, if we had kind of co-partners in this, this redemption piece, then you need a little bit of me to be saved. You need a little bit of my salvation. You need a little bit of my righteous life. You need part of my righteous life, and you need God's righteous life. You need part of your parents' righteous life, and you need part of God's righteous life. You need part of your mother's righteous life, and you need part of your father's righteous life, and you need part of God's righteous life. God says, absolutely no way. I'm not sharing it with anybody. I'm doing absolutely all the work and I will receive all the glory, I will receive all the praise and nobody shall look at me otherwise. You see, if there was a a form that I could do a little bit of my salvation, a little part of my salvation, I will tell that the world really needs to see me. (laughs) I mean, if you're gonna be saved, you need to see God in, you need to see me. And it's in us, you know, we wanna display ourselves, we want pride, we wanna be able to be recognized, we wanna be able to say, I, you know, that uh, you know, I have something that, um, that you need and also have God and we can work together. God doesn't want anybody to see anybody but him. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less so God can be proclaimed because God's the only one that's gonna save. God is the only one that's gonna save and we are living in a world that is desperate, need for salvation and there's only one way to look. And it's not with anybody that's here on earth walking around. It's with God and it's with God alone. Number seven, grace is not something that you use. Grace is something that uses you. Why do we worship God? We worship God for the grace that we have received. We love God for the grace that we have received. We obey God as a result of the grace that we have received. We serve God as a result of the grace that we have received. We give to others as a result of the grace that we have received from God. Everything that drives us, everything that sends us, everything that moves us, every action we do, the center word that should be driving every aspect of your life is this one word, grace. Unconditionally accepted by God. Powerment for growth and service. And washed clean a new man, a new woman called being born again, but it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it's not of yourself. Charles Spurgeon says this, this is how grace works. It enters the soul, it penetrates the heart, it saturates the conscience, abides in the memory, affects the affections, gives understanding to the understanding and imparts real life in the heart, which is the seat of life. Grace delivers us, it saves us, it redeems us, but it even does more than that. It touches us, it moves us, it sends us, it owns us, it drives us, it makes us. If there's one word in the Bible you want, it is the word, it is the word grace. That is the one word in the Bible that you want. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is the package that will give you everlasting life for eternity with him, but also life to combat this crazy world, the sin that is coming at us. God, I just pray for anybody in the room that has not come to you and asked for this grace. Grace is a free gift, but we still reject it. People still reject it. And I just pray, God, that uh, if there's anybody in this room that consistently rejects it, that our hearts would be soft and even as of right now 
and that they would come to you and say, God, I can't get to heaven by my own merit, but I can get to heaven by what you have done. You died, you rose, and I can be alive in you as a result of that. I just pray that they would turn, that they would find you, that they would accept you, and that they would be saved. We thank you, God, for the grace that you've given us. Every believer in the room, God, holds on to this amazing grace. I just pray you continue to educate us what this word means and what this word does. Thank you, God, so much for granting it to us. In Christ's name, amen.